Good morning. I keep getting, I'm going to say bothered, uh, by a verse that keeps being sent to me for Father's Day. So I guess it's the, the 2021 Father's Day verse. And, and it's, um, it says, The righteous man leads blameless lives. Blessed are their children after him. It's from Proverbs, Proverbs 20. I got to confess, I am not a righteous man. I have done terrible things in my life, but thanks to the grace of the Lord Jesus, I have been forgiven, and I have tried to lead my family, to lead my wife, lead my children, lead here at this church, to be obedient to the Lord. And I don't know how long I've been doing Father's Day sermons, um, a long time, because the children of this church that were little ones that would sit in my lap for Bible stories, um, and that way we'd go out into the parking lot and have water wars in the summertime, they're grown, and they're starting to go away. But, you know, watching them grow up, and I think of all the mistakes that I made, and the, the terrible things that I have done, I'm seeing them grow up, and I realize, you know, I didn't grow up until I was 30. And the way I know that is because of concerts that I went to. No, I'm serious. I remember I'm 30 years old, and the big concert that I go to see that gear at the Virginia Beach Amphitheater on the lawn is the Virginia Symphony. Mm -hmm, that was it. I mean, before then, it was all rock and roll concerts. And I mean, I... I wasn't the kind of guy who went to, to every single concert that came into town. I was very discriminating about which bands I would go see. I mean, it had to be something that was big because I wasn't going to spend all that money. But I saw the big ones. I mean, I saw Pearl Jam. I saw Metallica. I would annually go to OzFest. And it was always lawn tickets. You know, it's the best place to be at the Virginia Amphitheater is on the lawn. And unlike the Virginia Symphony, there's no blanket that you're sitting on. No. When you go to OzFest, you're standing there shoulder to shoulder with one another, and it always becomes a mosh pit. I knew it was going to happen, and I would prepare for it ahead of time, including dressing the part. Okay, so I know you, you, you see me dumpy dad in the tie-dye t-shirt. Well, I still was wearing tie-dye t-shirts. I just had <laughs> flannel on top of it. But I was wearing my blue jeans, and I always had on, believe it or not, my Navy boondockers. Hey, what, what do you mean boondock? My Navy boots. 
steel-toed, steel-shanked boots because I knew it was going to be a mosh pit and I knew people were going to get hurt. And I, I know, especially the, the younger ones here, can't imagine me moshing. But I mean, all you do is you keep, you keep your elbows out and the arms moving to the beat of the music and you jump up and down. You slam into somebody, you bounce off of them and that throws you into somebody else. Things get too far out of hand, you back away. Because you know security's coming. Security doesn't want to get that out of hand. The bands definitely don't want it to get that out of hand because then it's you know money out of their pocket for security. But inevitably, the people that I would go to these concert with, you know, somebody would end up with broken toes just from the moshing. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I'm going to stomp on some toes today. Now, it won't hurt as long as we're properly outfitted. So, let's, let's take a look at, we'll go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, and we start in, in verse 10, okay, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and, the strength, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That was always a theme when we did water wars with the little ones, was we would talk about the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the gospel, the good news, the truth, which is what we are going to talk about. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We'll talk about that too. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, be alert with all perseverance and make supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray for me while I deliver this message see because we start out with the state of the church not just grace united i'm, I'm talking big church the church around the world and it is not in good shape especially here in america now, we're used to all the demographics. You fill out forms, whether it's school forms or insurance forms, or you're going in the hospital or a doctor's, and they want to know, you know, what's your religious affiliation, and there's a checkbox you can put in there. It says Christianity. Most people just go, and put a checkmark in that box. But I'm telling you that most people who put a checkmark in that box, they're not Christians. Far from it. They don't even know what it means to be a Christian. Because... 
actually haven't told them. Dads have not told them. Churches haven't told them. Of course, most of the churches here in the United States, I'm convinced, teach bad doctrine. Some of us do it on purpose. Others do it accidentally. But I think most churches are not Christian churches. But that's fine. We're told that there's always going to be a remnant of, of believers. And rather than get upset by it, rather than allow it to drive me crazy, I embrace what Jesus said to us, said to, to John at the end of the book of Revelation. He said to do not seal up the words of prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. For behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he does. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's all in his hands. And I don't have to worry about it. All I have to do is be faithful. So we're going to take a look at some, some verses today. These are the primary verses that I want us to get into our heads. If you want to memorize scripture, then I suggest that you memorize these passages. You have them for me? The first one is from the, the Gospel according to John, 14.23-24. to 24. Jesus, he's talking to those gathered, and he answered them, and answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now this is very important, the way he ends this. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is being the messenger here. And he's saying, my Father said, if you love me, you will obey me. Now our next verse comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's near the end, chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after his resurrection. He had completed the work of the Father. And now, he is the one who will decide. Not me, not you, not leader of any other church. It all falls to Jesus. He is the authority in heaven and all earth. 
And then our last verse comes from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus warned us. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now these verses, like I said, if you want to memorize, these are important verses to memorize because nearly every heresy that we are presented can be dismantled with these three verses. And that's what we're going to talk about today. For our children who are growing up and are leaving. For those of us who are raising the young ones. For those of us, or you, who have small grandchildren that you're going to have influence over. Over. We need to be able to speak the truth in confidence, in love, into their lives and allow them to know whether or not they are being presented with truth or with lies. And it all stems from this book. So my first point that I want to make today is the miracle of this book. If you are going to be a Christian, if you are going to be faithful to God, if you are going to be obedient to the word that is given to us, then the first decision that you need to make is that this book is a physical miracle, a tangible miracle, the true and accurate and complete word of God that he has guarded over for over two, no, more than, more than two millennia, to bring it to us complete and accurately. So that everything that we need to know, everything that we need to do, is contained in this book. Yes, there are other resources that are out there. There are other places that you can go to help us understand that the true Word of God is contained in this book of 66 books. And we don't need to go anywhere else, and we don't need anyone else. It's here for us now. Now, I've spent a lot of time the last few months, over a year, as a matter of fact, digging into to my Bible and reading the red letters. When I, when I say reading the red letters, do you, know, do you know what that means? In a lot of Bibles, then, the New Testament, what they'll do is they'll take the, the words that Jesus spoke, and they will print them in red letters. And I've read them as a conversation. I've read them, you know, with the attitude that I'm just a fly on the wall, and Jesus' voice is the only track that I can hear I've read them in context of the rest of the scriptures, but focusing in on the words of Jesus. 
really it's not that hard. I mean, it's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first part of the book of Acts, and then the book of Revelation. So, I mean, that's, that's only six out of the 66 books that you need to worry about, that the red letters are in. I mean, you need to worry about the entire thing. But, but to me, the, that's the primary source of information that we have been given by God, is this Bible, and specifically the, the words of, of Jesus. And I've tried to, to teach my children, you know, when it comes to being educated, when it comes to critical thinking, when it comes to being presented with information, then we want to take a very careful look at the source of that information. And whenever possible, we should go back to the primary source. You know, for example, you pull up a page in Wikipedia and you read something, well, there are going to be these footnotes. I mean, you read a white paper or a research paper, something along those footnotes. You're reading, reading something on the Internet, hyperlinks. Finding out where did they get that information. Now, I classify things in, in the Bible. None, none of this is me. Primary, secondary, tertiary. I'm primary, those red letters, those words of Christ. But not just that. You know, any of the, the direct words of God communicated to us through the prophets is primary. I mean, that, that comes from God himself. There is no intermediary. And then, uh, secondary, uh, the words of the apostles, the other words of the prophets, the words of the psalmist. God inspired them. And so they are writing in their own words what God has inspired them to write. And then we also have in here, because we need to know the context of things, tertiary sources, the words of the scribes, historical stuff. You know, think uh, the books of Samuel. Think the book of Kings. All the history that we have. Numbers. All of it important for us to understand the words of the Bible, the message of the gospel. Now, there's more than just primary, secondary, tertiary sources of information. I mean, really, the, the generations, I mean, I, I went and looked it up. I mean, we have quaternary, quinary, centenary, septenary, octenary, nonary, denary. All these are generations removed from the primary. Is it important? Well, yeah, actually it is important. Because let me give you an example, all right? So let's say that you are listening to a podcast that's talking about this author's new book that they just published on research they did from commentary from Reformation theologists debating the interpretation of historical documents that were translated by their contemporaries. Documents from a first century church. 
It was founded by missionaries that were sent by the disciples of the apostles of Jesus. All right, you got a podcast from an author's new book on research that he did on commentary from Reformation theologists who are debating the interpretation of historical documents that were translated by contemporaries from first century churches that were founded by missionaries sent by the disciples of the apostles of Jesus. All right, there's nine degrees of separation in there, and Kevin Bacon isn't one of them. Is it wrong? No. Not necessarily. Does it speak with less authority than what this does? Maybe not. Maybe so. How do you know? You go back to the primary. See, something like that, you're listening to the podcast, well, it just means that, that we have some hard work to do. Now, researching someone else's research as long as they've provided things like footnotes and make it somewhat simple for us. But the big problem is a lot of Christian churches and a lot of Christians today don't bother to do that hard work. It's much easier for us to accept at face value the things that we are told, especially by supervisors at work, the your your media high priest on the TV or a teacher in a classroom and fail to do that critical thinking that we're, that's required to do for us to go back to the primary source and verify the information. Jesus warned us about this. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now look, we come across these people every day. They're all throughout churches in the United States, all throughout churches within the world. They're all over the Internet. Now I categorize these people into three groups. Now the first group I actually have empathy for. These are people who, who don't have the mental capacity to actually grasp these things. And I'm not going to use any type of negative words for people like this because these are the people who make honest mistakes. They don't understand it. And they deserve our love, our compassion. And these are the people that we need to gently bring back into the fold of God. Because they're not doing it out of malice. Now, the other two groups, different story. Because you have wolves out there who are presenting incorrect information, and they're doing it on purpose. They're doing it out of their own greed. They want to have power. They want to have influence. They want money. And the only reason they do it is to grow their congregation, sell their books, get advertising revenue from their webcasts, blogs, podcasts, whatever, 
and enrich themselves. And then there's the third group. People don't want to believe that Satan is real. People don't want to believe in evil spirits. People don't want to believe that there is the supernatural that we are told time and time again that that is who we wrestle against. And there are false prophets out there who present this information because they are minions of evil. And they do it to further the devil's agenda to draw people away from God, which is exactly what Satan wants to do, and to place them on a path that condemns them. Right before Jesus talked about bewaring of these false prophets, Jesus, he, he made the statement, enter by the narrow gate. You know, for the, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And he tells us that those who enter by that wide gate are many. Many. Now, does that mean 51%? I don't know. I wouldn't think the word many would be used for 51%. Does that mean 99%? It could. But the point is that in every way, in every day, on every Sunday, there are heresies that are being presented in not just American churches, but churches around the world. We need to be able to recognize them. Now, those who present these heresies are always going to deny it. They're always going to try and turn the tables and, and say, I am not a false prophet. I am not an antichrist. John liked to use the, the term antichrist for these false prophets. And they will always try and point the finger back at us, calling us hypocritical. But all we have to do is, when we know the truth, is compare their message to our primary source to unwind their heresy. So when I say heresy, what, what do I mean? I mean, it's someone who is trying to either replace God or in some way or form limit God's ability or God's attributes and replace that with something else to disrupt the true gospel. I mean, and heresy has been around from the very beginning from the establishment of the church. And it's going to continue to be around. Think of the Judaizers. When we read in the Acts of the Apostles and we get into the letters, the epistles sent to the churches, talk about the Judaizers, the ones who say, okay, yeah, in order for you to have salvation, you must first become a Jew and then you can receive Christ's salvation because you converted to Judaism. So you have to adopt all these ways. You know, you have to become circumcised. You have to live according to the Torah. And, I mean, Christ put an end to that right after his ascension. 
those Judaizers live on today. I mean, today, we, we, th- we talk about legalism in churches, where, where they say, okay, there's all these rules that you must obey in order for you to be considered a Christian and a member of this church because we're the true church and only members of this church go to heaven. Think about it, Latter-day Saints. Think about it, Jehovah Witness. There are all types of formal organizations out there that are legalistic. There are even legalistic churches who claim to be evangelical. Is your hair too long? Is your hair uncovered? Are you wearing the appropriate garments? It's all legalism, layers upon layers of rules, just like the Pharisees did in in the the second temple period of layering these rules on top of the Torah to make sure that the Jews do not offend the law anymore and so that they would not have to suffer what they suffered when they were taken into captivity into Babylon. But legalism, Judaism, demands that we obey the laws of man above the laws of God. So do you see how this heresy takes God and flips it? Now we must obey the laws of man above the laws of God. It's not the only heresy. Popular today, works. We've all heard about you know, doing good works. And it's not just the Christian church. Their religions all over the world are set up based on work salvation. Islam's one of them. You have what's halal, good, and what's haram, bad. And as long as your halal is greater than haram, then you can be welcomed into heaven. It's works salvation. American churches will do the same thing. Different set up this different ministry groups, and you have to be plugged into these ministry groups, and you have to be doing work in order for you to gain salvation. I mean, but we're told that we are not justified by works, it's justification by faith. Why is that? Let's be realistic. Your works are nothing compared to the works of God. I don't care what we do. I don't care how many people I serve at a food bank. I don't care how much money I give to a charity. I don't care how many times I go to a prison to visit someone or go to a hospital to hold someone's hand. I don't care how many times I do good works. It doesn't compare. God spoke into the existence, the entire universe, and he said, that's good. I can't do that. How can I compare to that? How do my works compare to that? You think your works are good? Did you populate the waters above and the waters below with the fish in the sea and the birds in the airs? No, you didn't. That was good. What you did, not so good. I mean, yes, we can do good works for one another. 
But as good as those works are, they're not good like God is good. And it's too little. Think about it. What God is capable of doing, what God calls good, we could never complete with or compete with. Our works are not good enough. There are too few of them. And it's too late. Because we are born with a sinful nature. We are fallen creatures. Our good works are stained by our sin. Yet every Sunday, there are churches in this world who present work salvation to their congregations. Heresy. One of the biggest heresies, and this is one that makes me so angry, and it's the heresy that denies the deity of Christ. When I say it makes me angry, when I was a kid, you know, we were learning American history, Thomas Jefferson was the greatest. I mean, the man was brilliant. And then come to find out, he took his Bible and cut out anything that talked about the deity of Christ. Because he did not believe that Christ was God. So I fully expect that when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be walking around and say, hey, Tom, how you doing? <laughs> because you deny the deity of Christ, you do not have salvation. In, in the book of Matthew, it says, so everyone, Jesus said this, so if everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this heresy and the people who teach this heresy are going to have their people and themselves stand before the throne of God. Who's on that throne? Who has the authority? Christ going to stand before Christ and say, you're not God. That's what I said. You're not God. And what is Christ going to do? Cast them out. Don't let anyone tell you Christ is not God. Another heresy. The prosperity gospel. Oh, this one is so popular. can't say that this one makes me as, as angry as denying the deity of Christ. I mean, it doesn't. But to me, this is just silliness of having a pastor say that we're going to pass the basket. You want to be blessed? Bless us first. The more you bless us, the more God will bless you. And they use Scripture to justify it. I mean, God did say 
Test me on this principle of tithing, of giving to God, because it, it is. God will bless us, but it doesn't say that he's going to bless us financially. Nowhere did God say, if you give me money, I'm going to give you money back. If you give me works, I'm going to give you works back. So this prosperity gospel, it, you can see why it is as popular as it is. Now, there's another side to the coin of the prosperity gospel, you realize. There's also the sign of, or the side of the coin that says that unless you give, unless you do works, you are under the judgment of God. Almost speaks to a works mentality, but it's a prosperity gospel in that, oh, you're having a bad time? Guess you didn't tithe as much as you should have. Maybe you should double that tithe and God will take you out of his judgment and bless you again. I actually had a woman sitting across the desk from me talking about difficulty that she was going through with her family and said that her pastor had said exactly those words to her. Oh, I guess you're not giving as much as you should to God. Do you have anything additional you can give? Maybe cash in some stocks or bonds and give to the church? This is especially egregious because what this does is it measures our worth to God with perishable materials. It's transactional. We give to God, we get salvation. Well, God already gave to us. It's completely one-sided. God said, I pay the price for you. Now, you belong to me. We can either accept it or deny it. It's not the give to me and I will respond to you, which is a whole other heresy of saying, the, and this speaks to, to the clockwork God of the God created the entire universe, wound it up, let it go, and standing back. And what happens in the universe, what happens in his creation, he is distant from. But, in this heresy, if we beg with God, God will respond to us. But again, it completely flips, takes God off of the throne and puts man on there says that our value is more than the value of the creator. The creation, God must come in because he values us that much more to care for, to provide for, to bless, to rescue. And what's so, ter what's so terrible about, about God responding to us in this way have I mentioned anything about sin? Do they ever talk about sin? Do they ever talk about repenting from their sin? No, they talk about crying out to God. I'm so tired of hearing that verse on National Day of Prayer. 
if my people turn to me and cry out. Yeah, you're completely missing the part of repent from their wicked ways. I'm sorry, I'm not going to join with anybody up in Washington, D.C. on the lawn praying for God to bless this country until you get those people to repent. That is the key. Repentance. Which brings us to probably the worst heresy. Universalism. There's no repentance in universalism. It's all these heresies rolled into one of the Jesus sacrificed and died on the cross, therefore everyone receives salvation. There's no call to repentance. There's no call to communion between us and God. There's no call to fellowship or discipleship. It's everyone does what they want to do because we're all going to heaven because God deemed it. It's the worst heresy because that steals all glory from God. The truth is that in this life, many, many souls are rightfully condemned and cast out of the presence of God. Very, very few souls are going to be welcomed into heaven. But God is glorified either way. God is glorified for his justice, his righteousness, his holiness when he rightfully condemns the wicked. And God is rightfully glorified when he extends his grace and his mercy to those who love him. What did Jesus say about loving him? He said if we love him, we will obey his commands. You see, salvation doesn't come because we believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We're granted salvation because we believe God. We believe Jesus. If we love, if you love someone, you will do everything in your power to make them happy, to please them. God tells us what to do to love him, to please him, to be obedient to him. But we want to take, or many people want to take the words of God, the commands, and say, well, that, that doesn't apply to us. Our culture is different. Okay, so what you just told me is what's in this is a lie. 
you don't believe it. If you don't believe it, you cannot receive that salvation. Now you see where I'm stepping on toes? God made the sacrifice for us. I want you to think about this, dads especially, but ladies as well. If you were given the opportunity, if God spoke to you directly and said, I'm going to make a deal, I am going to punish you, just to punish you, and it's going to be the most horrendous punishment you can imagine for a day. And then after that, you could determine who is righteous and who is unrighteous. It's all on you. Now, speaking as a dad, there's no way I would pass up a deal like that. Do your worst to me for a day. And I'll make sure that my family is saved. But that can't happen. Only Christ lived a righteous life. Only Christ was obedient to the will of the Father. I know we talk about and, and tell people when Jesus was praying in the garden. You were on his mind. I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. When Jesus was in the garden, when he was on his knees, when he was pleading to the Father to take that cup of wrath from him, when he was terrorized to the point where the, the capillaries in his skin burst and blood oozed into his sweat, he wasn't thinking of me. He was thinking of the wrath of God. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross, when it got to the point where he finally said, it is done, he wasn't thinking of me. He was thinking, I finished the work the Father sent me to do. All that Christ did, all the works that he performed, all the, the stories that he told, all of the miracles that he performed, was him being obedient to God. And we are to emulate that and be obedient to God. Sometimes it's difficult because there's stuff in here, there are, are commands in here that we don't want to agree with. But if you love God, then you, you say, yes, Lord. I might not agree with it. I might not understand it. I might not see how all of this works together because, God, I don't have your wisdom. But I love you. And I will be obedient to what you tell me. That's when we receive salvation. That 
is when we receive God's grace. It's not a prayer that is said. It's not works that are done. It is when we finally get to the point where we turn our heart from ourselves and give ourselves fully to God. And it sounds easy, but it's not. I want you to get this picture in your mind. Okay? You got a slide of the throne for me? We're going to go to into Revelation. And I want you to think about the throne of God in heaven. And that emerald rainbow, I mean, that's what they call it because that's the only words that we have to describe it over the throne of God and the four living creatures hovering above that throne sitting upon the glassy sea which is like the universe, all of creation at the feet of God. And you need to approach that throne. And when you first see it, it's beautiful, lovely. That words cannot describe the emotions that you will feel. But you have to approach that throne. You have to take that first step on to that glassy sea. And when you do, then that emerald rainbow starts blinding you with the glory of God. And you realize how lowly you are. You are approaching your Creator. You are approaching the Omnipotent One. And so you have to cross that glassy sea to get to that throne. And as you start going across that glassy sea, then you start hearing what's going on. You start hearing those, those four living creatures hovering above the throne, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. You're not holy. I'm not holy. How can I approach that throne? That is a holy place. I don't belong there. No one does. And we see the thrones around the throne of all the, the creatures in heaven, the angels, the, the elders, and we see them falling down on their knees before the throne of God saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I'm not worthy. How can I approach that throne? I am not worthy like the Lamb is worthy. And as you approach, that throne is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you start realizing how insignificant you are compared to the creator of this universe. 
And then you recognize underneath that throne are the souls of the saints. And they are crying out to the one sitting on the throne. They are crying out, How long, O Lord? How long until you punish those who did this to us? I did that to them. I'm the one who spoke words of hatred. I'm the one who, in essence, murdered my brother. I'm the one who committed the wickedness. I don't belong there. I asked John, the men's group, possible to be boldly meek this is my example how can I get close enough to that throne to fall on my face and plead with my Lord unless I am bold there's no way any of us can approach that throne outside of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is the one who took the punishment. He is the one who said, you may approach me and receive my grace. Boldly approach that throne. Meekly bow before your Lord. Commit your heart to him and say, I believe you. That is the way of salvation. There is no other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for what you have done from the very beginning when you set forth the foundations of the earth. You knew the exact path that we were going to take. You knew the failures. You knew how we would fall. And you knew from the very beginning exactly what you would do in order to redeem us to yourself. We're grateful that you value your relationship with your creation so much that you would step foot into time and that you would take the sacrifice, make the sacrifice necessary that we might be justified. Justi justified by our faith that you are God, that you are good, that you are all-knowing, that you are all-seeing, that you are all-powerful, and that you are our God.
help us to recognize the value of this gift. Open our eyes to the reality that our salvation is the only thing that matters. All worldly possessions pale in comparison. All worldly experiences are fleeting and momentary. But the salvation that you have provided us, an eternity in your presence, where we are your people and you are our God, is the only thing that matters. Open our eyes, Lord. Soften our hearts. Pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. I don't know exactly where you stand. I don't know the decisions that you have made. And I don't know if I stomped on and broke some toes. But if you have not received God into your heart, if you have not bowed your knee, and said to the creator of this universe, I will believe you and be obedient to you. Then I beg you, I beg you to boldly approach that throne in meekness. And if I did stomp on any toes, and you have issue with anything that I said, I'm happy to discuss it with you. For now, I'll ask Sandra, please come up and give us our last song. <laughs>